Colorado has a story to tell. From Glenn Miller to Diane Reeves, from the astronauts to the Lumineers, the Colorado Music Experience collects and preserves the legacy of Colorado's rich music history, serving as a resource for audio, visual, informational, and archival materials. Your host is G. Brown. Our guest is John Madden of the Serendipity Singers. Organized at the University of Colorado in the early 60s, the Serendipity Singers were one of the most popular ensembles to emerge in the big commercial era of folk music, hitting the national charts with Don't Let the Rain Come Down and Beans in My Ears. Welcome, John. Thank you. Get us to Boulder. How did you arrive in town? I was in the Army in Colorado Springs for two years. While I was there, I dated some girls up in Boulder. I had been there previously on the campus when I was at the University of Nebraska, and I was on the L squad there, and we came out for a football game, and I loved it. And then I had also worked in Central City as a bartender bar waiter for a summer, and also on some weekends when I was in the Army. So I applied for in-state tuition, and I got it because I had paid Colorado taxes. And so I went back to Boulder in the fall of 1960. And I affiliated with the Delta Delta fraternity that I'd been a member of. And that was my entree in meeting all these guys that ended up being in the singing group. The Delta Tau Delta House at CU may be an unlikely starting point for <laughs> a, a musical career. Folk music had always been around, but this is at the nascent stages of traditional folk music evolving into a newer contemporary form in the late 50s, early 60s. At the house, the Harlan Trio was formed there with some of your fraternity brothers, Brian Sennett, Brooks Hatch, mm -hmm. part of that group. And then when Brian was inspired to expand the group, he contracted you, and you were part of another trio within the house. They're different guys that remember different things. Brian and the Harlan Trio had dropped out of school the year before I came, and they were on the road out in California singing clubs. They actually had met the Brothers Four, who were still in college and hadn't left. I came up in 60, and the two guys, Arbenz and Browski, met me and said, do you know anything about music? And I said, well, I just got out of the Army from a 35-man Army corral. What do you want to know? And they said, can you arrange songs like the Kingston Trio? And my flip comment was, can't everybody? <laughs> so we formed a trio. In the next year, the Harlan Trio came back to school. So we had the six of us in school together. And it was just the six of us getting together and saying, hey, let's do some songs. And we started singing for the Rush Week. And we went around to sorority houses and sang outside the windows of their house after they finished their Rush activities. Bob Young actually came up and played bass at that time. And we got arrested by the Boulder Police Department for disturbing the peace. And they held us in the Boulder jail for about three hours until 5.30 in the morning and then let us go. What was the scene like? There were clubs in yeah. Denver? Yes, well, the Exodus was a club in Denver, and the Harlan Trio had worked there with Judy Collins and a lot of other people. There was a club in Boulder called Mike's Pub, 
That had a lot of people there. A couple guys out of the Christie's had sung there, Art and Paul as a duo, and had recorded on in Columbia, but nobody can find a record now. And they're very talented people. Also, there was a club called The Attic on the hill, and the clever thing about it was it was in the basement. The guy out of The Journeyman, Dick Weissman, would play there, and of all people, there was a younger guy that came up on occasion and lived in Boulder but didn't go to school, and he would sing there, and he would do all of the introductions. That guy was, gosh, uh, it's hard to remember his name, but it sounded like David Crosby. <laughs> that was kind of the folk singing. There are other people, but that's kind of the basis of it. With the six guys then, Lynn Weintraub came aboard. We had a, uh, I don't know what you call it, for free, we didn't get paid, to sing at the Memorial Center, the UMC, on a talent night. And somebody talked to a couple of us, hey, why don't you guys come up? You're pretty polished, and would you come up? And we said, okay, fine, we'll do it. And Merrill said, I've got a big-time date with somebody at the Kappa House. And this isn't going anywhere. We've been working as trios and duos. I'm not going to do it. Somebody said, hey, Tom, if you're not going to show up, we're going to move on. We'll replace you. And he said, hey, be my guest. We sang at that, and somebody said, we should get a girl. And the first girl we got was great-looking, not a great singer. She tried to be with us for about a month and a half, two months, and we said, this isn't working. I think it was Browski who knew Lynn Weintraub. She came in, and five minutes you said, this woman really has a voice. And you were called the Newport Singers shortly thereafter? The Newport Singers. And we were recording at Fred Arthur's studio doing commercials, radio commercials. The first day we recorded, the sound engineer called Brian and me into this box, and he said, have you heard your girl singer singing? We said, yeah, she's very good. And he said, no, no, she's better than very good. Listen to this. And he pulled her voice out, and the two of us looked at each other and said, Wow. She is really good. She's great. So you guys and Gal were yep. very popular throughout Denver and that jingle work. When we created a demo record, we paid for the demo record out of Arthur's studio by taking in kind from the monies we got from doing the commercials. And we were singing at the Hilton Hotel. We'd come down and sing conventions, and there was a guy that booked strippers called Bob Korash. He would book us into these places, and he'd say, you guys are great. But can you sing, Won't You Come Home, Bill Bailey? And we said, no, we can't. <laughs> and Arbenz affectionately named this guy Bad Dad Korash. We made good money from that. You had a unique sound that was being crafted. You hear folk music, you think of the singer-songwriter, sons of Woody Guthrie or Pete Seeger types. But this was an ensemble. You used several guitars and banjos and bass. Brian had been musical comedy stuff. He had dropped out to be an actor-singer out there on the West Coast for a while. And my background had been, I played a lot of instruments badly, but I liked jazz. And I really was a devotee of the four freshmen and the high lows. And I'd been in this Army choir with a lot of guys. We had two PhDs and five master's degrees and the three guys that had music degrees. And there were five of us that were kind of hanging on in there. But I learned some theory. And I really liked the dissonance. So when we did our voicings for the six of us, I did not have one of the big voices, but I did do basically the vocal arranging with the six of us and then seven. And I like to spread it and really make it more complex than folk music. And Everyone sang. We could spread the voicing and have a lot of range in it and complexity, much more so than the average. Let's see, you sing above the melody, you sing below the melody. 
took it all to New York in the summer of 63, hoping to land a recording contract? Yeah, we cut a demo record, and there were six songs on it, and we got 100 copies, and we put together an 8x10 glossy and wrote up a two-page bio sheet. And Brian and I came down to Denver, and we went to the phone company, and we got out the yellow pages for New York and Los Angeles, and we picked out all the agencies and managers that we thought that we'd ever heard of, plus anyone that had a big ad, and we sent the package out, and we set up an answering service that was in Brian's apartment. We were at the right time, the right place. We got a lot of hits. William Morris was the leading agency at the time, and they were very uh, aggressive with us. A couple of guys graduated at the end of the summer school, and I dropped out of law school. My in-laws thought that I was doomed. <laughs> Brian was married at that time, and his in-laws thought he was doomed. But we went back to New York in September. John Arbins basically said we were perhaps not unique, but we were close. And that is, we went to New York, and we struggled for two and a half weeks, and then we made it. <laughs> How many roads must a man walk down? Peter, Paul, and Mary had recorded Dylan's Blowing in the Wind in 63. That became kind of an unofficial civil rights anthem, and people were identifying with the politics of progress. In the music industry, there were people that wanted to capitalize on that folk boom, but the politics made some corporate types nervous. There was a demand for purveyors of a polished brand of folk pop, and that's what you were able to do musically. I think so. I think we were the last shot at national popularity of folk music. Yeah, there had been, I don't want to say the protest singers, but Phil Oaks was around, very good, very strong. Dylan, obviously, was a huge influence on everybody, on us, too. Peter, Paul, and Mary had been around for a couple of years and were big, and they had shifted into doing Dylan's Blowing in the Wind. But we were just before the Beatles' invasion. We went back in September we signed a record contract by the end of September. We signed management contracts. We were on the Hootenanny National Show as regulars starting in November. Our first job with a bitter end is the opening act for Woody Allen for three weeks. And they gave us wardrobes. Fred Weintraub, our manager, thought we should have characterizing outfits. Before that, we'd worn Kingston Trio shirts, maybe. And we had some jackets that we had, some matching jackets. And I remember being up at this wardrobe place that was basically Broadway wardrobe for measurements, and the guy said, have you heard of our group from England? And we said, no. And he said, you haven't heard of the Beatles? And we said, no. And who are they? And he said, oh, they're coming here. They're going to release some records here. And about a month later, they released their first record. I think it was Phil Oaks maybe Baez, they were walking down the street, and the Beatles were three weeks out. Phil Oaks said, this is the end of folk music, as it was known then. The group expanded again mm -hmm. with the addition of Diane Decker and Tommy Tiemann. They were both Texas-born folk singers. You performed at the Bitter End night and day for a couple of months with a musical director. One of the top clubs in Greenwich Village. It basically had a what they called a hoot night, open mic night on Mondays. Freddie Weintraub, who was our manager that owned it, he had somebody that would audition people, 
And my gosh, on the Sundays, they would have 50 acts come down there and audition. And it was a place where agents came and managers came and watched people. Jose Feliciano was there on a hoot night. The Simon Sisters, Carly was there. Joan Rivers was down there doing comedy. There were some really eventual big names that were down there. But when we came in there, Freddie Weintraub was the talent coordinator for the Hootenanny Show. First of all, he said, does a bass player sing? And we said, uh, yeah, he does, but not with us. <laughs> and Freddie said, he sings or he goes. So we went to Bob and said, do you sing? And he ended up with a pretty decent baritone voice. And then Freddie said, I'm getting you a contract to be semi-regulars on the Hootenanny show. But we've got some marketing people that know about the Christie Minstrels, and they're nine people, and we got to be nine people. And I got a duo I want you to listen to. And so they came in. And they sang one of their deals, and Freddie turned to me and said, John, take them in the back room and teach them some parts you think they should be able to sing. And this was before we had our musical director. And let's hear how all you guys sing together. <laughs> so I went in the back room and said, you sound like a soprano. You sing like a high tenor. Yeah, well, you sing this part, you sing that part. And we came out in front of Freddie and did these two numbers that we whipped up in about 20 minutes in the back room. And he said, perfect. And he let them go, and he said, what do you guys think? Well... We're our group. We're our group. And he said, hey, they add a lot to your sound. They're good people. I need it for a promotion. So we thought of overnight. We had a long talk, and we said, hey, sounds like there's some good arguments for this. And they came in, and they were fabulous as people, fabulous as singers. And you became the Serendipity Singers at That's that correct. point? And who came up with that alliterative name? Freddie Weintraub. Your manager. And nine of us said, that's the worst, and I won't use an obscenity name <laughs> that we've ever heard. We hate it. And he said, well, guys, the Newport Singers is so blah. There's a clothing store called Serendipity. I think that's a catchy name, and there's a story behind it. And we said, really? <laughs> it better be a good one. We learned about the three princesses, Serendip and the horse Walpole and the book. And we said, okay, if you think it's going to help you, go for it. And he was right, and we were wrong. It means happy accident, and it seems like there were a few of those involved. Yep. The college concert business at that juncture had evolved around folk music, where audiences sat there and listened to people perform, and the Serendipity Singers passed the audition you allude to to alternate as the headline act on Hootenanny, which was a weekly folk music showcase on ABC TV, wildly popular, taped at different college campuses, with the audience consisting of students. They ran for a half hour on Saturday nights, featured four acts, the second highest rated program for a while on ABC. There's a hootenanny coming every week on ABC. Starring folks, music singers from the mountains to the sea. Oh, the sound of happy music will ring out loud and free. The host was Jack Linkletter. It was a great show. They were pretty darn broad in their acceptance, but there was a political issue with them. Pete Seeger never got to sing on there. The old stuff came back to haunt him, and some of the sponsors, I guess, blackballed him, which was very unfortunate. But June Carter in the Carter family sang, Doc Watson. I met more of the old, old folk people in the two years that we were on it. It was just a great experience, plus all the new people. We had the modern folk quartet. Dylan, by that time, was too big for it. The Serendipity Singers signed to the Phillips label mm -hmm. and reached the top ten nationally with Don't Let the Rain Come Down. Number six. Subtitled Crooked Little Man. Ah, ah, oh, no, don't let the rain come down. Ah, ah, 
That song written by Ursel Hickey, the guy who did Bluebirds Over the Mountain? That song was around. Brian and I had sung that as a duo, and actually the Harlan Trio had sung it before. Our first two albums were really composed of the songs that we had done as the six of us. Bob Bowers ran the sessions for recording, and he did all of Freddie Weintraub's groups, and he came in and gave us a different ending and polished it. Public domain songs, if you do an arrangement adaptation, you can have writer's credits. And Crooked Little Man was a poem, a nursery rhyme, I think. And we had taken that and done our own arrangement. So first was recorded, Bob Bowers, Brian, and I had writer's credit for that. And it became a hit, and all of a sudden, out of the woodwork came Mr. Hickey and said, hey, I've got an arrangement adaptation, and yours sounds a lot like mine. We listened and said, no, it doesn't. So like all good people, we sat down with our lawyers and his lawyers, and we got the production rights to it through our production company, and he got the writer's credit. So we split it 50-50. Wildly successful. That song was nominated at the 7th Grammy Awards back in 1965 for best performance by a chorus. And then you issued a follow-up, Beans in My Ears, which hit number 30 in June of 64. Interesting, a novelty song that was actually banned in some markets because mm -hmm. I guess putting beans in your ears is considered dangerous in some quarters. It was banned in Boston, <laughs> and once it was banned in Boston, there were other markets. What we were told was uh, kids put beans in their ears. <laughs> <laughs> Otherwise, it would have gone to number 29. <laughs> well, a hit is a hit, so all credit to Beans in My Ears, but not really a great example of what the Serendipity Singers were about. You did a much bigger variety of music than your hit records. You were doing Broadway-type things. A song of love is a sad song for I. I sit at the window and watch the rain. Hi, Lily. Hi, Lily. Hi, think Live, you were an incredibly visual act. Lots of talk yeah. and blackouts, and yep. everyone had some theater background, and you really uh, put on performances as opposed to just playing music. I have a regret song-wise. We worked very hard. The first year we were together, with the exception of four or five days, we either rehearsed, traveled, performed every other day. We were like mules being driven, but we liked it. We flew in from being on tour. Bob Bowers, our music director, said, I've got two songs from films that we've got permission to cut, and we're going to submit them for the release with the movies. And one was from Dr. Shivago, the theme, and one was from Flight of the Phoenix. 
we played all our instruments on our first two albums, and after our first two albums, we never played another instrument. And I had to go to the guy that played 12 string and say, how did you play that, Phil? See if I can play it, don't do something I can't play. But we sat in that studio and we cut the one for Flight of the Phoenix very quickly. We stumbled over the one from Chivago. It was late at night. Some people said, hey, we were losing our voices and the band was tired and let's come back and cut it. And I and one other person, I think it was Diane Decker, said, hey, no, no, this is the song we should cut. We gotta get this down. And we tried it one or two more times and we couldn't get it. And as you know, that became a huge hit, yeah. huge hit people would hear the serendipity singers and other folk acts and say, well, that's country and western music. Mm -hmm. It was kind of all part of the same ferment. Absolutely. I think it was. We did a Hootenanny show down at the University of Tennessee, and all these people, every old country western group, and we worked with Flatt and Struggs, we worked with Bill Monroe, Doc Watson. You could hear the overlap in the songs, and the appreciation was right there, back and forth. Serendipity Singers had three charting albums, and you appeared on every variety television show of the time, and there were a lot of them. The Ed Sullivan Show, the Dean Martin Show, the Tonight Show. Bell Telephone Hour. Yeah. Shindig, uh, as well as Hollow Blue, where you were co-hosts. You played to millions of people. Yeah. We did the Tonight Show. I had gone to school with an actress who became an Academy Award winner, and we'd done summer stock together by the name of Sandy Dennis, who's now deceased. And Sandy had been on that show show about three months before, and I saw her occasionally in New York and kept up a friendship with her when she was traveling and I came out to Denver. And Carson, after the rehearsals, I was walking down the corridor and he was standing right by his office and he said something to me, hey, it's great to have you kids on here. And I just said, we're pleased to be here. And I have a friend that was on University of Nebraska, Sandy Dennis, and she said she really enjoyed being on the show. And he said, really? are you from Nebraska? And I said, yeah, I'm from Fremont. And he said, gosh, come on in. So I sat down with Carson for about a half an hour BSing about his time at the University of Nebraska and mine and Sandy Dennis's. Fast forward 25 years, I'm out in Las Vegas wandering around as an attorney, and he's sitting there, and I walked by, and I said, Mr. Carson, you probably don't remember me, but I was one of the serendipity singers, and I went to the University of Nebraska. He said, oh, I remember you. Come sit down here. So I sat down and had a Coke or something to talk to him. So that's always stuck in my mind about performing on TV shows. Of all of the new singing groups in the world, here's my favorite. They're the greatest, the serendipity singers.
it's not as if the serendipity singers were apolitical. You were active doing barbecues all over the country for young Democrats. We did a lot of work for Lyndon Johnson, did fundraisers for him, and got to know him and the family, and sang at the 64 Democratic Convention with Peter, Paul, and Mary, and then they invited us down to the White House for a number of shows, and we would perform with other people. We would then be invited for the cocktail parties. So I had the great experience of sitting with Hubert Humphrey for a half an hour, waiting for Congress to break, and just talking to him about life, baseball, and singing, and Minnesota, and his career as a politician. The Johnson family was very gracious to us. The Beatles and the British oh. invasion. Everyone hearing that and realizing it was a sea change. It wasn't the end of folk music, but it was a whole new influence in the folk music. I think they were so dominant in terms of what they were doing musically. I love their music, and I love the two guys writing and arranging. Lennon and McCartney, boy, their songs are complex, and they're very interesting. It influenced all of folk music, and that's when and how folk rock really started. And all these people, the Birds and Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young, all kinds of groups came out of that. And people became half and half kind of, as it were. But the folk music influence always stayed in terms of lyrics and music. Patty Davis was a new member. She replaced Lynn Weintraub yep. at a certain juncture. When did you move on, John? What transpired in your life? I had gone to law school for a year and a half and dropped out, so I had a year and a half in the summer school session to finish. And I got a letter from the law school that said, John, we've enjoyed your success with the singers. A number of the faculty have watched you on television, but if you want to come back to law school and not have to repeat courses, you'd better come back pretty soon. I was married and had two children. I'd been there three and a half years. It was a great experience, but I knew that I was not going to be a singer. And I went back to get a law degree and come back to New York and be involved. I had an offer from our law firm that represented the Serendipity Singers and a lot of television, a lot of music. So I went back to law school and graduated a year from the following May. So I was back a year and five months. At the same time I left, Tom Tiemann left and went back to school. Diane Decker and Patty left, as did Brooks Hatch. So we had a pretty big turnover. That left Brian, Mike, Bob, and John. So out of the nine, five of us left within about two months. Stage 
1970, the last original member had moved on. The name was sold? Brian went into management with Fred Weintraub right away. About a year later, Mike went into the management firm and they bought out Freddie Weintraub's management company and Freddie became a producer with the Warner Brothers. He did a number of films. He did all of the Woodstock filming. Very talented man. And so Mike and Brian ran that and John and Bob stayed singing. By the 70s, Bob came back to Colorado. John then left and went into radio. And Mike actually bought out the group at the end. And Mike then ran that for quite a while. And he became a manager. There was a group that was working into 2001. And then they cut a couple albums and did some television shows. In name only. They became a cover band. They were pretty good, but they were not our sound. <laughs> Brian eventually came back to Colorado, too. He was from Loveland, and Bob lived in Boulder. The three of us saw each other quite a bit over the years. From our experience, our group really approached what we did in a professional way. We never missed stuff. We always performed. We were always timely. We never had problems. We worked harder than hell. We took great pride in the music we put together. We had funny kinds of zits back and forth in the group, but we were all pretty damn good friends. And we saw groups, I mean, geez, the Mamas and Papas, oh my God, the big three were on The Tonight Show, and they couldn't get them out of their dressing room. They were back there smoking a little bit too much, and they had to say, guys, you know, you got to get out here. And we saw that. That was a psychedelic explosion when we were working. But we all had families. We were all older. Thank goodness. Thank yeah. goodness. You've done pretty good for yourself, sir, in your adult life. Amazingly successful trial lawyer here in Denver. I've been very, very lucky. I stumbled into law school because I got lucky on the LSAT and did well on it. Somehow I fit in and I did very well in law school. And I started with one of the four old line firms here in Denver, started in the estate and trust department. And I did that for two years. And it may sound silly, my wife doesn't understand that, but I enjoyed it. And I love the administration of estates. You stepped into the shoes of somebody who had been a successful businessman, and you ran his estate until they sold it or transferred the business. And I found that fascinating. I was then in the corporate division for a year. That was not too exciting for me. I was pretty boring, and I did consumer legislation. And then I got a chance to go to the U.S. Attorney's Office, and I was a federal prosecutor for four years doing trial work. I loved it, and I found that my abilities as attorney were better and more satisfying in that career, and I've been a trial attorney ever since. I came out of the U.S. Attorney's Office and went with a firm with three Delts from a Delt house that were good friends in law school, but six years younger than I, and there were six of us in that firm, and I stayed there for 20 years, and we built it up to a firm of a name partner, and it was a firm of 75 lawyers when I left. I left a practice with my son for 11 years, who's now a judge in Denver, and my granddaughter is starting her senior year in law school at Boulder, and we're the fourth family since 1896 to have three generations go there. That firm, Brownstein, Hyatt, Farber, and it was Madden, now it's Shrek. It's now a firm of 220 lawyers with six offices nationally. And I've had a wonderful career, and I am trying to retire now after 50 years of practice. 
Did your background as a performer aid you in any way as a trial lawyer? Absolutely. We stood in front of an audience somewhere between 2,000 and 5,000 people six nights a week. And we all introduced songs. And many times things would happen and things would go wrong and things would change. And it was a question of how fast can you think? If you take 10 good attorneys and give them a problem, nine of them will come out with the same position eventually. If you take the same 10 and say, you got five seconds to respond, a lot of people don't have that ability. There's nothing you acquire, you just have it or you don't. What's your favorite musician's joke? <laughs> I will tell you one that fits me, and that is, what do you call a folk singer in a three-piece suit? I don't know. For my profession, you call him a defendant. <laughs> <laughs> All right, buddy. The Colorado Music Experience is a nonprofit educational and cultural organization relying on financial support for music enthusiasts to fund its initiatives. To learn more, please visit colomusic.org. C O L O music.org. Terrapin Care Station is a Boulder-based, vertically integrated, consumer-focused cultivator, processor, and provider of high-quality medical and recreational cannabis products. Terrapin loves music and is proud to partner with Colorado Music Experience to educate the public on everything great about our state's music history. It adds significant cultural value across Colorado, solidifying our state's position as a leader. Follow Terrapin on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, or visit terrapincarestation.com.